Suri Hustva is the internationally acclaimed author of a book of poems, six novels, four collections of essays, and a work of nonfiction. In 2012, she was awarded the International Gavaron Prize for Thought and Humanities. Her books include What I Loved, Memories of the Future, Living, Thinking, Looking, and The Blazing World, which was long listed for the Man Booker Prize and won the Los Angeles Book Prize for Fiction. She has also published numerous papers in scholarly and scientific journals. She has a PhD in English Literature from Columbia University and is a lecturer in psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College. Her work has been translated into over 30 languages. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. Siri Hustvet, uh, welcome to the creative process. So you've just uh, completed or just been published uh, Memories of the Future, and you've spoken mm -hmm. about needing time to, to recover from a book, almost a period of, war of uh, mourning when you finish your work. So what would you, what conversations did you have with yourself before you began Memories of the Future, and what will you miss about it in the characters? Well, that's a good question. Actually, I have to say, I I never stop writing. So, but I cannot finish a novel and then begin another work of fiction immediately. I definitely need to recover from the book. And I often do that by writing um, uh, other texts, other nonfiction texts, uh, throwing myself into uh, a lecture or an essay that I want to work on. So that's a way of continuing to write, but also not leaping into another uh, novel right away. I do actually miss the characters, and I also miss the what I think of as the rhythmical beats that belong to a specific uh, project of fiction. I uh, get into a motion, if you will, um, that's specific to that particular book, um, as well as some intimate connection to the various characters uh, over, you know, that usually it takes at least a, a couple of years to, to write a novel. And so, so yeah, yeah, I do miss them. As we could speak about Minnesota, S.H., Lucy Bright, the Baroness, what were their rhythms and how did you get into them then? Well, it is actually um, a book that's organized around rhythm, and the very first sentence um, uh, delineates that, you know, that, that she feels this hero um, almost as a a kind of uh, rhythmic. I wanted to emphasize that, you know, I have no idea. I'm getting some reviews now, and you think, well, you know, I mean, I've gotten some nice reviews, but they, um, you know, you always feel that that people have a hard time understanding what you at least think you're doing. 
so here it is. When I arrived in August of 1978, he, in other words, the hero, was not a character so much as a rhythmic possibility, an embryonic creature of my imagination, which I felt as a series of metrical beats that quickened and slowed with my steps as I navigated the streets of the city. Um, and so, you know, I was hoping to set up both the theme of rhythm and to introduce the reader to what will become the rhythm of the book, which is quite strange. I mean, it's structurally quite strange. Um, and I did think of it as being organized around a series of repetitions. Right. And how do you find, because it's, it's also conversations with uh, your, your, uh, the character's younger self, which also you use. Also, <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't want to say you, but you know. The, uh, yeah, it's someone, someone, as I say, I'm playing with my autobiography. I wouldn't have named my narrator S.H. Um, if I weren't playing with him. Has your rhythm changed? As you're, you're going back into... Um, um, a New York that you encountered, uh, roughly the same time period when you arrived in New York, and I guess how has the rhythm of the city changed since you came? Well, as my narrator points out, um, the city that uh, she and I moved to in 1978 was a much grubbier place. Um, the, you know, severe financial crisis um, in the mid-70s that uh, New York had faced was, um, you know, it, it was over, but the effects of that financial crisis were still very much visible. It was a much rougher town um, than it is now. Yeah, and you, and you speak, it's strange, you know, it's so, it's interesting to read about poverty and to read about like difficult circumstances and it's I, I don't know um, you did I don't imagine you went through exactly the same um, diet. No it's not yeah. exactly the same but mm -hmm. I would say you know emotionally the, <laughs> the poverty is all true. Mm -hmm. um, I had very little money. I had a small stipend uh, to live on which was I think it was the best stipend that you could get at Columbia. I was a graduate student. I did not spend a year trying to write a novel as my heroine does, but um, it was it was um, hard, uh, and I did go through periods of panic about the rent and um, not having enough food. Right. And she also has to overcome um, other kinds of you know, attacks. Well, there's one big attack in the book that has gone over and over with a kind of almost obsessive attention, which I think is, is very typical of traumatic events um, that, you know, people want to uh, explain it to themselves. Uh, and, of course, after it happens, she becomes quite dis dissociated. I wonder, I don't want to ask this now, but I guess I did want to bring, I wanted to bring up beauty, and I wanted to bring up, um, you know, the things that, you know, a, a beautiful, intelligent woman is, um, um, you know, has to, I, I don't know, I just, I think I should ask. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of like the elephant in the room, but you have to, like, um, 
be twice as smart or be twice as intelligent and still want to seem maybe as an object or you know there's a yeah i think you know i think these are complicated um issues and Mm -hmm. particularly complicated of course for young women Mm -hmm. um the strange uh one of the strange qualities of our culture and uh is of course that um a beautiful young woman is assumed to be stupid. I mean, people do it without um, without thinking. There's an implicit assumption that, um, you know, beauty and intelligence are at odds. Even though, of course, rationally, I think most human beings know that this is not the case. You know, if you pushed people to the wall and asked them and they would say no of course people can uh, you know or women can be uh, beautiful and intelligent at the same time but um, but if you I've, I've used this example before I used it in an essay to point out how we all carry around implicit prejudices and I said so here's a little story there's a beautiful young woman in a low cut cocktail dress standing across the room talking to two other people and then across you know on the other side of the room two people are watching her and one of them says to another you know that's so-and-so she's working on her second postdoc in molecular biology at Rockefeller and the general position is surprise you know how can that beautiful girl in the low-cut dress with a glass of champagne in her hand be working on her second postdoc? I think this is a pretty widespread assumption in the culture. Uh, Why is that? Well, because people in molecular biology for a very long time were not women at all of any kind. So we carry around these stereotypes with us and they affect our perception very deeply. I mean, perception is hugely about expectation yes and then the other thing that they're recording people who might be making this assumption is perhaps their intelligence is being affected by looking at the beautiful woman they're becoming a little silly so they imagine that she's silly but it's actually taking place in their mind because of their dazzled or something it's so strange well i also think here that this is an interesting thing which has to do with um male female dynamics and it's actually crosses cultures that the feeling a man is having towards a woman, let's say a feeling of desire, of sexual desire, the woman is then held responsible for that desire. And that's extremely interesting because it doesn't go the other way around. So for example, if I find myself attracted to a beautiful man, I feel responsible for my desire. I don't think that he's created it. (laughs) I don't blame him for it. And I think that's something extremely interesting. You know, why is that the case? They're almost being treated as a a work of art or something. Yeah, that they're not, they don't have volition. They have, there was something that was created. Possibly, but then, you know, why blame her? If she has no volition, then it would be just like, as you say, a work of art that is inanimate. They know that it's, you know, uh, (laughs) they know there's something there. So, you know, I think these are rather complicated questions, but I also think 
that very deeply these are problems of authority, right? So the idea of a woman having authority is deeply problematic in the culture because in order to have authority, it means that you have to, first of all, acknowledge the authority of the woman and also that becomes hierarchical, doesn't it? Because by acknowledging the authority of a woman, there are many men in various cultures who feel emasculated simply by acknowledging the authority of a woman. Well, that's of course something that we're, we're dealing with, especially now. Hello, my name is Amia Marshall and I am a student at St. Olaf College collaborating with the creative process. I found that Siri Husvet shared a very profound insight into the link between our worldviews and how they are sculpted by our experiences. Although our worldviews are formed by our personal experiences, they are still malleable and can be altered despite its rigidity. I find that the question she poses in regard to sexism and the cultural hesitation to acknowledge the intelligence of beautiful women serves as a challenge for the culture. It is a call for growth and an expansion of what we as a society believe to be true. If we allow ourselves to be open to things that may challenge our pre-existing perceptions, we grow and our creativity can expand from there. But I would like to, you know, talk through, um, you talk about, you know, uh, you writing um, your, your scholarly works and balancing that with your fiction. So I would like to talk about your body of work and touching life. And, and of course, as you, as you mentioned, women artists, that has been a theme. I don't want to say women artists, but I'm just differentiating. That has been a theme of many of your um, right, works. Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, if we, could, if we could walk through some of your others. Um, before uh, there was the delusions of certainty, how did you organize your thinking about that? I know it's, it's a collection. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, that's, a, you know, I just won the European Essay Prize for that. I'm very proud of it. So, very proud of that. Wow. But, yeah. um, but I just, uh, but that book, or, you know, it's a book in some countries in America it was included in this very fat book of essays, A Woman Looking at Men, Looking at Women. Yes. Um, <laughs> but elsewhere it was published as a separate book. That book ran out of me, and I'll tell you why, because for decades, really, I had been thinking about the mind-body problem, and it had uh, risen up once I became deeply immersed in neurobiology. And I realized that there were paradigm problems in neuroscience that had not been properly addressed uh, in sort of broader terms. And I wanted to write that little book, um, about 200 pages in English. And 
it r- really ran out of me. <laughs> so I didn't end up doing a lot of research specifically for that book. It was about problems that I had been thinking of and thinking about for a very long time. So very much the way I wrote The Shaking Woman earlier. All the research and thought came before, and uh, the first book was precipitated by a shaking episode, which seemed to be a perfect symptom to use to write the kind of book I wanted to write, and The Delusions of Certainty was prompted by an increasing worry about paradigms and models in science. And it seems, it's, it's so interesting, well, another subject of, of your essays and your books is, is this curiosity about creativity or sense of mm. the questions about like the, where yeah. the imagination begins in childhood. And it seems like that's the period, and you identify in many essays, where we don't have this sense of boundaries where and 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 where some of our most imaginative processes i i feel like that i feel Mm -hmm. that's when they begin oh it must begin in childhood right and um and i'm very interested in child development um in uh the kind of openness that's necessary i think for people to work creatively and that you know some childhoods turn out to be better for that than others and if you if you think about uh creativity as an enterprise that is finally human just it's a thing people do (laughs) we have uh creative urges from the time we're very very young uh then i think it's easier to frame it i mean dw winnicott someone i like and admire very much the english psychoanalyst and um, pediatrician talked about play um, as something extremely important in human life and that play is also you know begins to take place between the infant and the mother which is for winnicott the other um and that the baby realizes for example with his transitional objects like a blanket or a toy or whatever that he clings to that that this transitional space is also the space of creativity and culture itself this is one of the brilliant insights that Winnicott had, I think, after (laughs) reading Freud and Strachey's translation of Freud, where he talked about the transference as a playground. I've also written about this. In German, the word is Tommelplatz, which is not exactly a playground. I think it's quite a good translation, but Winnicott took the translation. He did not read German, and creatively thought through this idea again and related it specifically to children and to the arena of culture which Freud did not do 
Um, there's also Vygotsky, my other another hero of mine, uh, the Russian psychologist, um, who uh, writes very beautifully about play and um, the use of certain, you know, like a spoon as a person, <laughs> and and how this is crucial to the emotional and cognitive development um, of, of children. So I think, you know, creativity or art begins in play and in child's play. And as Winnicott says, there are um, adults, adult patients who need to learn how to play. Yes, it's curious because it seems it's how we tell these we tell stories or we make pictures we dance we do these things as a way of understanding the world and then mm -hmm. we are told we must forget how to play and i don't know what happens i think you went to a, a steiner school as well only for one year oh. it was the year i was in norway in the mm -hmm. seventh grade yeah. i have to tell you i i loved it it was as if someone had transplanted me from um i don't know cold <laughs> you know uh you know almost military uh school environment into paradise i had a wonderful teacher too i had wonderful teachers all around but my main teacher was someone i loved i meant you're very playful but were there things that they had to how do you say you had a certain way of doing it and then they said well you can be free you can do this well, do you remember that advice or I think, you know, I was just ripe um, for that school. Mm -hmm. I, they were very kind to me as well, but I fell in almost immediately. You know, we were able to draw. We wrote, for example, the stories of history that we were told into books, and then we illustrated them. Every girl and boy learned to knit. <laughs> you know, yeah. we painted every day and ev every 15 minutes on the hour we were allowed to go out and just run and shout and do whatever we pleased. So mm -hmm. it was a, a heavenly school for me. Wow, that's that's beautiful. So I imagine you, um, because I, I know of course you do an immense amount of research, but also I think playful writing. As you say, the, the books also come out of you having accumulated all of this. And now I have a, and I imagine you, you know, having little breaks <laughs> where you, you, you practice yoga, you do, uh, you do some kind of dance or whatever, like to, to get out of the, um, well, I love to dance. I mean, I mean, yeah, I don't I go dancing <laughs> enough, I have to say, but every time, you know, I'm at a wedding or I get some chance, I really, I think um, the, you know, that in our world, you know, maybe especially since um, the scientific revolution uh, and the, the 17th century, the division between the mind and body is a really, uh, I think, you know, serious and unhealthy one because we are not um, a two things. You know, I'm not a substance dualist. I think Descartes was wrong. Um, as uh, invigorating a writer as he may be, uh, so our uh, we are bodies that think. You know, yeah. that's what human beings are. We are not um, minds hovering over. Uh, flesh and I think it's I I recognize for example how a day of ferocious intellectual labor 
makes me physically really tired. Yeah. And that uh, it calls for, you know, moving one's body, uh, you know, stretching and and walking, uh, doing something else, exercising vigorously, whatever that uh, that you get physically tired. The other interesting thing, which is, you know, I brought up with my hero that she discovers while she's walking in the city, yeah. is that there's a very strong motor uh, component to writing itself, which is like the human gait, you know, which mimics the human gait. And I find that when I am stuck uh, on a paragraph, if I stand up and walk, usually the sentence gets jogged loose. Mm -hmm. So that's a very interesting thing uh, to think about. These are not separate, but highly integrated uh, uh, questions. You know, so, so writing is not this um, cerebral activity where little gears in your brain are moving around. <laughs> it is um, an embodied act that draws on deep, you know, motor sensory aspects of, of who we are. And another thing that's interesting, I think, for writers or people who are, are devoted readers and quite sensitive to language, uh, to differentiate, because now we're moving into a period which is, you always lived in a visual culture, but you know what's happening with social media and everything, yeah. where some people are, I don't want to say, they're not it's sensitive to language like one no. word means the same thing to them as other but if you ask a writer or like it would pain you maybe if i said a cliche <laughs> and it would just like you'd feel it like a physical presence and it would be oh go get that out of the room you know but others are mm. so it, i i feel that's unfortunate and then of course people from different disciplines who if they're not um, um multidisciplinary like yourself um they don't they don't hear the the false notes as much no, no. So, you know, this is, it's the way um, painters develop, you know, such a high sensitivity to color, for example, that it's, it's really startling and always illuminating to listen to painters talk about color. Uh, or, you know, a, a musician talking about, you know, the differences, uh, that I don't know. I'll do something bold. I'm not uh, very smart about music. My daughter is, but uh, you know that it's a, a, a key change. What this can mean uh, in a song, for example, and the sensitivity that's developed around that. And of course, for writers, the music of a sentence is hugely important. And you're right. I have felt more and more a kind of strange insensitivity to prose. Even among people who, you know, review books and seem to do this for a living, that there's a kind of dead ear. And that may be the result of, as you say, the increasing importance of, of visual images as opposed to text. Although people are texting and tweeting and policies <laughs> yeah. things, so we haven't lost symbols. I mean, language is going to stay with us. Uh, but maybe the, I don't know, maybe the motion of a prose sentence 
you can certainly see it in 19th century letters written by people who have very ordinary educations um, ring with a higher uh, I don't know sophistication than a lot of writing uh, today and, and that's rather interesting and that may be due to the fact that that the whole culture turned on reading and writing in ways that it doesn't now. Right, because right? um, there was no TV. Yeah. This is before movies. Mm -hmm. It's before... Um, so what, what was entertainment? Well, it was reading and going to theater. And I'm, I, I feel... I mean, I, I think that there are interesting developments happening now in television. Of course, there's a lot of novelists yes. who become showrunners. And, and so I'm fascinated because <laughs> I've had conversations with them. They tell me that they're like closet poets. I'm like, oh, yes. <laughs> so well, I think, I think it's, 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 a, it's a great mistake. And, mm -hmm. you know, curmudgeons of every period <laughs> have, you know, dumped on new media, if you will, or mm -hmm. new genres, and I think that's a big mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, there are all kinds of um, forms uh, of, you know, brilliant creative work. I mean, there should be no limitation on forms. Sure. Although I would say it is true, there's this, there is this, uh, I think, renaissance now in television and, and some film. Um, yeah. But... Uh, you know, you can't deny that also some of these things are made to be easily translated across, you know, cultures, and so that of course there's there there is nuance that's lost because I think they want it to be as easily translated as possible. That's right. Yeah. Well, and so you know, some of the, the the dangers of this, I think, is that um, uh, cliches, yes, cliches become. Um, they, they, they start to become truths mm -hmm. and it becomes very hard for people to, to for example look at a movie or um, listen to a piece of music or read a novel that is not following the rules if you will yeah. and those rules can be you know people don't know I mean <laughs> listen I, I know this with my own work that People have a tendency to smooth out what is not smooth, to conventionalize what is actually rather radical. I mean, Memories of the Future is a pretty radical book, but I've noticed that the tendency is to turn it into something digestible and then just to leave out everything <laughs> that might not be understood. And by doing that, of course, you're not taking in the work as a whole and that could take time I mean I'm not uh, you know a lot of these poor people they get something for the first time they have to read it fast they're badly paid you know uh, how many of these do they do a week who knows but um, so it's not this is not a um, angry critique of <laughs> people faced with a work of art and not knowing what to do with it but we really are creatures of convention and as I said before that is how perception works you know it works on priors what you've experienced before and if your experience is limited 
you will not be able to move into the necessary position to understand what a thing is that is outside of that experience. So most of the time we're on a kind of perceptual autopilot and uh, we are, uh, you know, consciousness, full consciousness is, is often saved for novelty when we have to figure something out. But also in art, you know, figuring something out, does, your survival does not depend on figuring out how a novel works, right? <laughs> you're, you know, as I say, these works of art always exist inside um, an aesthetic frame, and that aesthetic frame is also prote protective. Um, you know when you watch a movie, even if something terrible is happening in the movie and it affects you very strongly, you know that the, let's say the murderer is not going to jump out of the screen and threaten you um, with an ex. Well, right? you have, so. yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. But yeah, some people are forgiving how to read. I'd like to also uh, discuss some of your um, other works like um, The Blazing World, which when you talk mm -hmm. about, you know, changing forms or having all these multiple voices yeah. and being yeah. able to go into them. Uh, how yeah. did you do that? Well, I would think that this mimics very much what happens to actors yeah. um, because most of it is not, um, as they say in cognitive science, cognitive. Yeah. It's a feeling for the characters. It's moving inside a character so deeply uh, that the, the voice begins to speak on its own. Uh, and and I think actors um, understand this very well. Uh, it may it's not that it takes no work, but it's a form of possession. I think you know so it's <laughs> mm -hmm. someone you know is buried deep inside you and comes out. That's why in one essay I compared this to multiple personality disorder. Um, there's a big difference. I think that. Uh, writers can call upon those moments and then of course uh, uh, let them go whereas people who really have dissociated identity disorder um, are not in control of uh, their characters if you will mm. but um, but there's something mysterious about that so and if I'm, I'm fascinated I know because you're just fresh off your last book so um, but I would like to talk about the blazing world and why you chose to, to write about Harry or Harriet. Yeah. Well, she. Um, <laughs> I. I. I think I'm not sure what you know came first, but I did have this idea of the um, masks in an experiment, and um, this uh, very large, tragic. Uh, Character and someone who had the breadth and um, yeah bigness uh, to carry uh, you know w what what is something like or something akin to classical tragedy and then once I had the masks and then the idea of you know real men. 
becoming the masks, things started to take off. And I knew that it was going to be about perception, that she was mounting this experiment in how we see and interpret not just art, but the world in general, and how those perceptions are hugely determined by sex. Uh, she is a person who's very arrogant in, in many ways, vulnerable but arrogant. She's absolutely convinced of her own greatness. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. And that position is, of course, very anti, I mean, it's very unfeminine. You know, women are supposed to be modest. They're they're not supposed to think that they're geniuses, but Harry does. So I wanted uh, a person to explode both the mind-body problem and to explode to explode the you know male-female dichotomy that uh, is part of the mind-body problem. Right? We identify masculinity with the mind intellect, spirit, the sky, culture, and we identify the female, uh, you know, woman with the body, nature, uh, 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 you know, literally the earth and, and dirt, um, so, and certainly not intellectual or cultural life. So I wanted her to be a figure that blew all that to pieces. <laughs> and what I what I <laughs> and um what I like though and and also in your essays that what I like is that you s celebrate the body. Well, I feel like you celebrate the body, you celebrate the voice, and I always feel that what moves me most in imaginative works is what you I guess suppose you might call it associate with the feminine. You the instinctive mind I feel more powerful than the logical mind, which you can you can pick it apart, you can see its components, you know? Um, well, that's what I feel. I mean, they're yeah, both well, powerful. Yeah. Well, no, but yeah, yeah listen, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for logic. I actually, at one point in my life, started studying symbolic lo logic yeah. because I wanted to learn it. Yeah. Um, but, but I think this is what, you're, what you may be saying or may be getting at. The um, complexity. It, yeah, it's also, I really don't believe there's a division, yeah. right? And I think that because the body has been so denigrated in the culture, um, that by talking about embodied, uh, uh, you know, models, for example, which are very big in cognitive science now, I mean, that is the new paradigm. Um, this idea that the mind is a computational machine uh, is being left behind. It never was. <laughs> it never will be. Um, and I think the only way to think about, uh, you know, what we call the mind is through the four E's. You know, this is the, uh, the rallying cry of the moment, which is the mind is embodied, embedded, enacted and extended uh, so the failures of artificial intelligence um, have uh, 
created, I think, this paradigm change. Of course, a paradigm change does not mean that everybody agrees. There are tons of, you know, there are lots of disagreements um, in embodied cognitive science. But, but by bringing the body into its proper place, I think um, necessarily that means that uh, that when the body is important and because women have been associated with the body you know since the the Greeks that it can't help but uh, begin to redress some of the problems that um, we've been carrying around for centuries and I'm speaking also then of the body I don't want to forget I mean the, the first book that I read by you what I loved and mm. and, and uh, the relationship between artists and uh, those that inspire them and uh, what was the genesis of that story? Oh boy, you know it took me six years to write that book. Yeah. I wrote it over four times. Yeah. It was this. It was Leo, and uh, and it's you know it's, I mean I really came to to love this man and he is an inveterate observer and of course suffers a, a tragedy so the book I've always thought of as a sort of an ordinary account and then suddenly this terrible accident intrudes and he has to reconfigure his whole life around it and in some terrible and ironic way it ends up creating the second tragedy I mean there's sort of two tragedies that turn on two boys uh, the book is also a kind of mirror of these two families you know it just grew <laughs> it grew I mean I always had the same essential story but there was more and less of various aspects, and I think the trick for me was getting Leo's voice right, getting this narrative voice right. So I ended up writing the last draft in eight months after I had, you know, I started from scratch again. Oh, you completely rewrote it? Yes, oh, okay. four times I completely oh. rewrote it. Okay. And then when I started that last time, I just put aside the whole draft that came before and just wrote from beginning to end. Okay. And then, yeah. oh, oh, so you, is that a kind of thing where it's a palimpsest or you're doing it from <laughs> memory or what? Uh, well, what I knew the story. I yeah. knew what happened. I knew what Leo said, but I just, you know, the only thing I didn't write again Mm. In that last draft was um, the death of Matthew, which I I actually never touched after I wrote it. Mm. I didn't even read it again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then I just plugged it back into the novel, mm. and um, and that never changed. Yeah, sometimes. So I think now again of actors and doing it on take one or take four or take uh, or take yeah. twenty, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean sometimes it's 
it's different. And I do feel now, I do feel that since I wrote What I Love, by the way, that I, I'm more open, I'm more relaxed. But I did, you know, before I wrote Memories of the Future, I worked on another novel. It was also about time and memory. I knew oh. I wanted to do something about time and memory. Mm -hmm. And it just failed. Huh. I worked for about a year. Oh. I had almost 200 pages. And it was just dead in the water. It's a very strange oh. feeling. <laughs> and I threw it away. Oh. Oh, did you completely? Because you never know. <laughs> you could, um... I, well, no. I mean, I mean, it's somewhere. I mean, I didn't throw away all the pages, but I, I gave up on it. Yeah. Um, really, and interesting, because I, I have to say, and it, this is a, a little uh, wrinkle on creative work, which yeah. is that um, after you've done it for a very long time, you you have a feeling that you're not going to have to abandon a project. Oh. And yet I knew this thing was dead. And also, I think I understood once I started writing Memories of the Future that uh, that I needed that I was in part training myself for writing this book. Okay. Oh, right, okay. You understand yes, that, that it, what I wanted to do was hard. <laughs> yeah. And I needed to fail at doing, at doing it before I could succeed. Yeah. Because, you know, whether anyone knows it or not, I had actually made a, a kind of leap, a formal leap. So... Um, so I don't think that time was wasted, even though in some way nothing came of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. You have to, well, I guess, you know, we're, we're, you're relaxing into this uh, different period, a different voice. And, uh, and I don't know that a lot of uh, writers understand it, but some people couldn't understand that. <laughs> but um, No, no, probably not. But they say that also too, like about marriages or whatever. Sometimes it's a practice. <laughs> <laughs> what was I doing? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but uh, so I think about. Well, don't throw it away because you will go back and you you've mined previous works for. Uh, oh yeah, no. I mean, I, I think there's like I think there's actually one section that was taken from a real story that, um, not my story, but someone else's story, mm. that. I may turn into some kind of a strange essay or short um, short work because it, it was really it's really interesting. Well, as you say, and then talking about other mediums, like maybe that could be like perfect for something that's filmed or you know because something. Who knows? You know, who knows? Uh, but I don't mean to say. I'm thinking also <laughs> now that some people have created artworks of uh, what I loved, and so you know some things can have live in a different form. <laughs> yes. Yes different from what you do so uh you know i was wondering you think about your senses a lot you think about perception you think about like which senses you might or could do with losing you know or you think about memory i don't <laughs> if one had to make a choice or if you imagine yeah. a world drained of color or um not being able to write down your thoughts and to see them yeah yeah i mean i think especially as I age, I think about possible losses, mm -hmm. and uh, this, you know, there are many possible losses, 
Right. I mean, actually, I can say in Memories of the Future, um, the character of the mother is very close to my own dear mother, who's now 96 years old Mm -hmm. and is, um, you know, and has dementia. Her uh, recent memory is very, very bad. Uh, She remembers her huge portions of her, especially her early life and certainly um, a good deal of her later life but she does not remember what you just told her. And it's made it impossible for her to read, you know, one of the great readers of all time, especially of novels. Uh, She was a very sensitive and enthusiastic reader, but she also would, if she loved the book, she would read it three or four times. (laughs) You know, one of those people. And she belonged to book clubs and play reading clubs and... And I'm very happy that, um, you know, she had all that in her life. It wasn't until 90 that, or 89 that uh, it became clear that, you know, her memory function was diminishing. And, uh, and you know, I, we'll, we'll just see. But these are real possibilities for, for all of us mm-hmm. if we're lucky enough to live long enough, most of us will have some form of cognitive impairment. Uh, so I think about that, and it makes me feel the urgency of the moment. I feel really urgent about getting out what I can get out before it's too late. Uh, and also, yes, losing one's sight, losing one's hearing. Um, all of, you know, having an accident, uh, becoming fatally ill. I, I mean, we have no control over any of these uh, possible events, and uh, it means that uh, I guess I embrace my good luck now without thinking ever that it's going to last. I would also, both of your parents are were great readers or great, if you also like to speak about, I imagine there were an example of your father um, and how they were examples to you as your early teachers. Yes, yeah, in different ways. So my mother was really the fiction person, you know, she was the one who gave me English novels, even though uh, she's Norwegian. Uh, but she loved uh, 19th century novels and gave me one after the other once she realized I could read them. Uh, and poetry. She loved Dickinson and Blake, and at 11, she was the one who gave me uh, these poets to read, and I remain forever grateful. Um, My father, who had a PhD in Scandinavian studies, um, loved history. He had read, you know, philosophy, Um, so he was the uh, anointed intellectual in the family uh, when I was you know, growing up and, uh, you know, occupied a different, the more masculine position, if you will. Uh, but, uh, uh, but yes, he was, uh, definitely a model for me when I was growing up. And I uh, one thing, uh, I'm sorry, I'm skipping, skipping around here. Go ahead, skip, <laughs> what, skip. Because you've written about, I don't, uh, it's always awkward. So this is an awkward segue. I wanted to ask about sex. Go <laughs> for it. From, from family <laughs> to sex, just you know, odd segue. No, but um, so it it's fascinating because as readers, like 
I mean, I don't know you, but I feel I know you through your books. It's just such an intimate process. Yes. And yes. as one, you know, a, you know, sees artists work, reads books, it's like it's so intimate. It's like beyond lovemaking, and, and almost voyeuristic and perverse. And I wonder <laughs> if we didn't have access to literature and art. I mean, I wonder for myself, would yeah. I be some kind of nymphomaniac, you know, instead of in <laughs> infomaniac? Well, you know, th this is a very interesting question. And of course, um, probably the person who, you know, wrote about this best may in fact be Sigmund Freud. So mm -hmm. he understood that, you know, human beings, um, not just human beings, animals in general, but he of course was interested in human beings, have drives. and. Uh, he made a distinction between the drives and the instincts, right? So instincts are, I guess, you know, hunger. And I suppose sexuality, you know, is, is very close to that. But what Freud argues is that our, you know, drive for love or erotic attachment um, depends on our histories. So that we all have these drives, this movement toward the other, but what it attaches itself to, that drive, is determined by what happens to a human being. And I think he's right about that. You know, when you think of all the different erotic proclivities that human beings have, uh, we're extremely various. and. Uh, you know, how that works is also dependent on our particular histories, probably rather early histories. So, w which early, I don't mean to be personal, so which... <laughs> well, <laughs> I, know what I have no idea what determined my sexual desires, but I can say that, um, you know, because actually that's the funny thing, we don't really know. Right. I mean, um, I think, uh, you know, sometimes there are moments, for example, in an, an analysis that mm -hmm. I've had um, where you understand aspects, you know, deep aspects of yourself that were completely invisible to you before, mm -hmm. um, you know, how something happened or how you developed a neurotic trait, uh, and it's possible to explore you know, what that is. Um, I don't, of course, think of erotic life as, as a neurosis. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's needed. <laughs> no. So it's, you know, and, and, and I do think for most people, although there appear to be some people who live their lives um, asexually and, and do just fine, mm -hmm. um, most of us are driven by profound erotic um, Drives, you know, mm -hmm. that we, we have those needs, but they are shaped by our personal histories and by our culture, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Eros is not just a free-floating blankness. It's um, shaped by, you know, how the culture views femininity and masculinity, um, how we position ourselves in that. Much of this is not fully conscious. But um, human beings are 
deeply social creatures and I think we're affected by all of this. So then as you think of your culture or cultures, uh, you know, uh, being an American, also having the Norwegian influence and then you yeah. know, places you've lived and visited, so how did you, th- how do you feel they influenced your imagination? Well, I have long thought that this kind of doubleness, mm-hmm. the fact that I had a Norwegian mother and a Norwegian-American father meant that there was always this other language and this other culture. And it provided me with the sense that the way things are here is not how things are always everywhere. That's, that, that's really important to me now as a grown-up, that the fact that I had two languages and two cultures allowed me, I think, a flexibility of mind that people who are limited to only one do not gain. Yeah. And also there's this constant or regular sense of translation. And when you notice that something means something and you can react quite strongly to something in one language and and, and there's not a communication. It just, you're aware of the limitations. Absolutely, and also the wonderful reality that there are words in one language that have absolutely no equivalent in the other. Oh, well, so what are some of your favorite ones in Norwegian, <laughs> or uh, other languages? Cause There's I a those. beautiful yeah. word, but it turns out it's a very old-fashioned word. I grew up with it because my mother used it, yeah. and it's vesen. And yes. what this word is untranslatable, but... My mother would say, for example, if she had been, you know, visiting some people or had met someone new, and she would say to me, she had a beautiful vessen. Now, a beautiful vessen is not the way a person looks, but it includes the way a person looks. And it's not just, you know, their inner being. Mm -hmm. It's everything all together. It's some way of talking about being that is not high-flown or philosophical, but very down-to-earth. You know, it includes the way a person moves, the way she looks and talks and carries herself in the world. It's just, it's wonderful, and I I don't think people are using it very much anymore, so in in Norway, which is a a little bit sad. And of course, there are some great... um, German philosophical words that um, we've borrowed in English, um, like Zeitgeist, right? And um, oh, there are a number of these Weltschmerz. I mean, that's a beautiful expression. We don't have world hurt. (laughs) That's not an English word. I'm I'm feeling it now, but (laughs) we we should have it. Someone needs to. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes these. These um, languages uh, are exceptionally good at, you know, one part of life and then not another, and then another language picks up the slack, et cetera, et cetera. So probably um, the more languages you know, the more you can burrow into the strengths and weaknesses that are, of course, deeply revelatory of, of the culture. 
I would love to speak about some of the um, writers and artists that you've written about or even collaborated with. And I'm just thinking now, uh, well, let's speak about philosophers. You know you look like Kierkegaard a bit. Have people told you? Have people told you that? No, but I am <laughs> deeply pleased. No, I don't, because I know you wrote about uh, cross dresses, but you don't. Deeply you look like a feminine. I mean, it might be, it might be, the, you know, the Scandinavian bones. I certainly. I mean, no, have nothing a, else in me. A feminine? No, because I was just looking at the drawing because I was considering how to do your portrait, and I thought, oh my <laughs> god! And uh, you know the drawing I'm talking about. Um, yeah, I do. I like yeah. that drawing. Yeah, yeah, it's very, yeah. it's the, you don't mind me saying it because you don't, you're very feminine, but you have this, <laughs> this, it's just the proportion and the placement. It's just very interesting. So I like to think about. Um, well, that's a, that, uh, that's a wonderful. Um, no one's told me that and, and, you know, I'm just, I couldn't be happier to look like anybody. Oh. I mean, I really, you know, I really love Kierkegaard. I mean, yeah. and, and he has obsessed me yeah. for many, many years. Um, you know, and he, he obsesses me to such a degree that, you know, I have to take regular breaks from him. Okay. <laughs> and he's written so much, so I, it's... Uh... <laughs> well, it's... Well, no, I mean, when I gave this address at a Kierkegaard conference, yeah. and I would... I read many more... You know, I haven't read all of the notebooks, for example. There's 7,000 pages. Yeah. But I read books that I had never read before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... And at the conference, I met lots of people. I said, you know, well, what do you think about this and that? And they hadn't read it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're right. There's just so much mm-hmm. that uh, he's uh, he's a uh, he's a he's a difficult one. He's also a kind of devil, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because he's you know his ironies are are, are really um, are are not always so easy you know there's mm-hmm. layer upon layer when I was writing The Blazing World I was thinking a lot about Kierkegaard you know you know games and jokes and enormous ironic difficulties and I just let it all out it, it was a lot of fun well it's it's nice to inhabit those voices and it well it makes sense for me when I saw that uh, drawing because I think about you you know working uh, across disciplines and being uh, well, I don't. You, you don't consider yourself a philosopher, but you've written about philosophy. I don't know if you. you yeah, you? my husband now is saying that I'm a philosopher. He's very kind, but also yeah. I actually gave um, a lecture yeah. in Paris, um, in, and I, I ended up adopting a um, a subtitle that I was given by someone who had read the paper oh. um, in advance, which was um, he said. Uh, you know, I think this should be called Plato Placebo Placenta. (laughs) (laughs) And I've taken that as a title for this. It is indeed a a kind of work of philosophy. And Mm -hmm. afterwards, a philosopher that I admire Mm -hmm. um, sent me um, a note, and she said, you know, you're a really good writer, but I just want to tell you that you're a really good philosopher. And that was a high compliment coming from this woman that I really respect and admire. So, you know, who knows? You know, you 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 wander into these um, into these arenas and begin to work out problems for yourself. And they, you know, where does philosophy end and 
you know, and you know, something else begin, or, you know, when does what you're doing turn into philosophy? It's hard to know. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad that others are saying that because I wasn't sure how you like to label yourself, but I mean, for me, and I think for a lot of people who are artists or writers, that they may prefer your way of writing about philosophy or neuroscience or psychoanalysis because you have the story is there and tangible and the metaphors are there. I mean, I can feel it's it. It's true. You know, this is, this is, it's very important to me that um, I do believe that this material can be lucidly explained and that elegant writing and seductive writing means something. You know, a lot of scholarly work is pretty boring. I mean, I read a lot of it. <laughs> and I know that people are, you know, not invested in style. And I think it's important because it makes it possible to captivate an audience. Now, it's also true that some of these philosophical questions, most of the culture is not eager to think about. And especially if you're um, exploding or picking at people's favorite pieties, um, they will simply ignore what's there. I mean, there's no question about that. It can be expressed very lucidly, lucidly and elegantly, and, you know, your prose is not going to help um, chip uh, the minds of people who have already uh, made their decisions, if you will. But I still am strongly invested in making, you know, a compelling and clear case for what I think, and bringing the reader in, not, uh, you know, building walls between me and the reader, you know, that, that happens yeah. in, in scholarship, or people are just so completely inside a particular field, they've learned the vocabulary, they're speaking only to other people in the field, mm. and they're essentially stuck there. Yeah, that, and that does seem unfortunate. I mean, and it's this way I feel, and I'm not sure that all artists are able to be, to, to cross over as you are. Uh, but if we can be, um, help, we can be a bridge in some way to uh, yeah. make it, uh, to bring it to, to the general public, I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, because it ultimately, what, what you ask yourself, well, for philosophy, is whether you, it's about helping people live better, I hope, more fulfilled lives to answer the important questions, but ultimately you want to reach as many people as possible, right? Yeah, well, also, you know, the it's because I actually think that most people have a stake in, yeah. in these questions, right? It really does make a difference, for example, in how um, a society invests in, say, art and science mm -hmm. you know what do we value and why do we value it uh it's it's important you know you look at um american education and how 
so many uh, schools were stripped of art and music classes and stripped of um, you know that that what they have emphasized continue to emphasize is you know stem mm-hmm. which is you know the, the the science part and 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 mathematics over english now i happen to think that science is really important and i'm a big science booster mm-hmm. but i don't think it's important to the exclusion of everything else and i was um I gave grand rounds at Massachusetts General Hospital in neurology, which means you just talk to the neurology neuroscience department. And uh, I gave my lecture. That was fine. And then you get to, you know, they take you around. And I visited some researchers who were working on Alzheimer's and dementia. And they gave me presentations. It was wonderfully interesting and I was able to ask them questions and then they asked me questions and a young scientist said to me you know you you were talking about how you think it's important that someone like me uh, reads philosophy and literature and the history of medicine and he said why oh. and I said you know it's just kind of came to me and I said well the reason is not because I think everyone should be well rounded you know that's a nice thing but um, I don't really care about how you perform at cocktail parties you know what I the reason I think you should read in these other disciplines is because it will help you in your own work now I really mean that I think what has happened with the fragmentation of disciplines is that when problems arise, the people working in the discipline are unable to see avenues out of the problem that they would easily see if they had worked through problems in some other discipline, you know, which is is something that, you know, I've started to notice that I've been traveling so widely and, you know, not casually. I am not a tourist, right? So if I become interested in something, I do not um, just skim over the surface. I really try to learn it. And um, this has resulted in an ability to point out flaws and outright errors in certain modes of thought that I never would have been able to do otherwise. It just would be impossible. And also, I want to emphasize this. <laughs> this is something that comes through the act oh, yes. of reading deeply, right? It's not something, you know, people have a tendency to talk about, you know, intelligence as if, well, I guess as if you're just born with it. This is clearly not the case. You know, there are obviously differences in people's aptitude that we may be born with but you know the ability to dance intellectually is learned just the way it's learned by dancers and by musicians there's certainly some native aptitude that is quite mysterious and that may be there but without training it's lost 
and that's why I think also novels are great teachers because it's this kind of um, besides the the academic reading, which is wonderful that you you can you can go into these worlds. I think a lot of people f feel limited, but in terms of it's a it's a whole world experience like that, and that you just you're learning about you can I mean not with everyone's novels, but you can learn about so many aspects of the world without even realizing that you're learning. Yeah, listen, I have come, you know, uh, I don't even know if it's full circle. I mean, I have a PhD in English literature, and yeah. um, but now at age 64... Oh, I don't um, believe it. Oh, yes, I'm an old lady. I have come to believe that, you know, one of the, the greatest forms that we have is the form of the novel. And it is because in the novel, um, you know, in its sort of highest um, in its highest realization you know we can think of many of the great novels but that y you have access to the particularity of human experience in ways that you have nowhere else I really believe that and that the intimacy that's established between the reader and the text is extraordinary. I mean, I think of something like, you know, one of my favorite novels is Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. And this amazing book takes you into phenomenology, which I've studied very deeply in ways that the greatest phenomenologists, Husserl and Merleau-Ponty, who I love, um, especially Merleau-Ponty, want to do, but 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 she does it at such a high level that it's extraordinary. It's funny. I reread the novel after I had been deeply immersed in phenomenology, and you know, I just thought, here it is. She's doing it. It's extraordinary. So. Um, yes, I think that the novel is a great teacher. I mean, there are lots of bad novels. There's lots of bad scholarship. There's lots of bad philosophy. There's lots of bad everything. But uh, in its highest incarnations, you know, the, the, the novel, I, I agree, it's a great form. And what we're seeing now, you know, like libraries closing... Yeah. And I know so many writers, well, just artists, or people generally told me that they were raised in libraries. And of course, yeah. you still have many great libraries in New York. Yeah. But I, I do think it's... Um, oh, the yeah. library is vital. Yeah. You know, it also appears, I mean, I know from the Brooklyn Public Library yeah. um, that, that, and that has um, really engaged with the community in important ways, uh, that... Libraries can be the lifeblood of, of communities. They're open to everyone. The public library uh, is essential. In my little hometown, Northfield, Minnesota, yeah. I started going to the local library. It was a, you know, Carnegie library. Oh, yeah. You know, he, yeah, he started libraries all over and then became our public library. Yeah. And uh, I, I loved it. I remember going there. I remember the smell of the books. I remember the 
cards in a card catalog. I remember the excitement of checking out books. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the reading group I belonged to as a very small child. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole atmosphere, the excitement. And then my school libraries, and very early, because my father was a professor, um, the library where he worked at St. Olaf College, and he would take my sister and me along with him while he worked in the archives of the library, the Norwegian American Historical Association, and we often drew or read on the floor. But the feeling of the library, which then was, of course, associated with my father and my affection for my father, uh, ran deep. And the Columbia Library... You know, I think I put this yeah, yeah in an essay long ago that I was walking across the campus many years after I was no longer a student, and I turned and looked at Butler Library. I had been uh, shaken by some very dark feelings that must have been, you know, vague memories, not really memories, but, you know, that I had suffered some as a graduate student. And I turned to Butler Library, and I was lifted up. (laughs) I felt a kind of joy. And I thought to myself, well, you were happy in the library. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. They (laughs) they're beautiful spaces. Which I was. (laughs) Uh, They have this feeling, I mean, whether one is religious or not, but it has that very comforting feeling. I like to go into churches for the same reason. Uh, my Me local too. library is the Bibliothèque saint jean And oui. it's just, it's all there and it's so meditative. But you, you work at home, I know that. But um, I do. And, and you know, we have... You have a library at home. <laughs> we have quite a big library here at home. Um, I still, you know, and I, I add to that library uh, and still order books. I mean, I order some strange books. I'm interest in medical history mm-hmm. um oh yes and you and, know and, about and, and I, I want to talk yeah, about other things <laughs> those weird yeah. some of these weird books that are printed on yes. demand you know that oh yeah uh, no one's read since the you know late 19th century oh. uh and and but that you can get them and sometimes you can get you know uh an, an old copy that's more rare mm-hmm. but uh yeah, I, you know, I have a passion for books. And, of course, I've been thinking lately that, you know, I've spent much more time in my life with books than with people. Yes. Well, I mean, pe- people yeah, are, people, I people. mean, they are books. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah, living people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the other thing I want to say, because there is a sense of the book, or the, sometimes the work of art, but definitely the book, which takes so long to create. Um, that it's a it's a more intense experience. Like uh, I did want to talk about dreaming. How is how is it? Because I want to ask you about you know to memoir or not to memoir. Like why you choose to write a book that can be a more intense experience, uh, a novel that can be a more intense experience than uh, writing about events that happen to you. Yeah, uh, that kind of this thing. is a, this. I think um, this is a profound question. I think that the novel, in other words, fiction, allows you openings to what 
I think of as emotional truth that the uh, documentary truth, if you will, yeah. the you know real, real, yeah. does not give you that the freedom in fiction is that you can actually get closer yeah. to the bone, mm -hmm. closer to uh, the deep meanings of things than if you're held to some kind of documentary account. I, I believe that, and, and I think most of my novels are um, a search for that. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. you can fly. Mm -hmm. uh, you can fly in fiction in ways that, that are much harder to do in, in nonfiction um, or in, you know, genuine memoir. Not fake memoir. There are a lot of yeah. those. <laughs> and then there's then there's some novelists who are writing memoirs, but you know they're really writing it like a, a fiction. I think you know, oh like yeah, or they've been blurring. Of, yeah, yeah. A lot of memoirs adopt what I call the you know journeyman mechanics of the novel, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They take you know there are pages of dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, there are minute descriptions of things. Uh, that no one can remember, uh, or very few. You'd have to be a savant. Uh, so that, for me, has always seemed a little wrong, and I do make fun of that in mem in Memories of the Future. You know, very early in the book, the narrator says, you know, if you're one of those people, you know, who likes, you know, all these, you know, rich details um, in memoir I have this to tell you anyone who claims to you know remember what their hash browns looked like you know four decades later is not to be trusted <laughs> yeah I mean yeah, you can't yeah, I, I don't unless yeah exactly uh, unless you wrote it down then yeah yeah it's not and then even so but I want to talk about we talk about education um, and the kind of examples, the teachers that you had, and the freedom. But I think about, because it's an educational initiative, and I think about the interdisciplinary um, conversations you've had and the work you've done. If you could improve our current educational models, you know, what are things yeah. that you would do? It's funny, you know, because um, in the United States, the idea of a liberal education, college students in, in America take a number of subjects. You're not asked uh, in high school to decide that you're going to be a mathematician, whatever, right away. And yet, I see that, you know, forms of careerism that are completely understandable, um, and a lack of understanding, I think, that a multidisciplinary education helps you to think better. Um, continues to narrow the scope of many people's educations. It's, it's too bad. And, you know, how do we solve this? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I think that research that's out there that demonstrates uh, 
the importance of of what we've been talking about, you know, real creativity that involves play. That, for example, if we let our children play just freely, um, that they will think better and be better than if we force them to do five hours of homework every night. There's a lot of research that demonstrates that this is true. And yet the culture uh, completely uh, shuts all of that down. And the research doesn't seem to matter. And since, um, yeah, I mean, because you don't notice that you're you're learning all these things. It's just, it's a return to childhood through an adult perspective. I really feel that too. Look at how much children learn. You know, they can learn so many, like, languages, but that, you know, if you just give it to them when they're just so young and many other things. I want to speak about, because we're also uh, collaborating curators for this um, One Woman, One Vote Festival 2020. So, you know, uh-huh. we're coming up uh, to the 100th anniversary of the um, women's suffrage. We certainly are. And, yep. <laughs> and you've written about many angles of being a woman artist, being a woman writer. I, don't, I know I, I, you don't like that word, but I'm just in the, this context I mentioned. Well, I've started uh, adopting the phrase man writer. Man writer. Yeah, yeah, I do. But just being, a, you know, a, a, a strong voice of creativity. Um, what do you feel, you know, we have achieved in this last hundred years? What have we yet to accomplish? And, and what are your hopes for the future? You know, what's really funny is that there are two ways of looking at this, and I, I have a tendency to do both. Mm-hmm. And one is that it's only been a hundred years that women haven't even had suffrage for a hundred years, mm-hmm. which is one long lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, my mother still lives in a retirement community, Mm -hmm. and there were women I met, I think most of them have died now, who were born before women had suffrage. Yeah. Right? So when you think of it that way, um, the improvements, at least, and now we're talking about, you know, the United States and and, uh, England and, you know, these countries that where suffrage came about around the same time uh it's been quite extraordinary uh how many fields women have access to now that they didn't including medicine and law when i was a child there were no women lawyers or doctors in my hometown none right um if you look at it on the other side what i think the women's movement did was opened up the idea of of fatherhood the numbers of fathers that i see carrying their children around wheeling strollers um that was not done in my childhood so all of those are radical and important developments uh so that's the that's the bright side um the darker side is that i think we continue to punish Um, authoritative women we continue to punish I mean look at the last American election people are not comfortable with women in positions of authority Um, there is a lot of resentment um, a lot of rage and one of this I keep returning to it because it was so horrifying Um, there was a study conducted and published I think it was at the Kennedy Center to 
social psychologists got together a bunch of voters, Republicans and Democrats, and gave them the same biography of a fictional state senator. The only difference was that one was labeled a male and one was labeled, one was a man and one was a woman, had different names on the biography, and it included the words power-seeking. It may have included the word uh, ambition. Now, if you're running for public office, you are ambitious because you have to be. (laughs) There's no other way. (laughs) You have to to want power or you can't run. So what really hit me was that not only that there were voters, both men and women from both parties, all of them gave had no feeling about the man but a significant number of them reacted to the woman with I am quoting feelings of moral outrage just for being strong yeah contempt Mm -hmm. anger and disgust now that's really strong and it is quite distressing Mm-hmm. that you know and again it doesn't seem to be it's not just men who react this way it's women too mm-hmm. so we're all shaped by this perceptual idea and to make it maybe even more graspable I think we all of us have expectations that women should be nice I mean mm-hmm. they should be kind and compassionate and and caring and if they aren't there's hell to pay and of course i happen to think that compassion and caring and 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 all of that is really good and we should emphasize that in human life but we should emphasize it in human life not only in women and there are ways in which women contort themselves into pretzels to avoid the kind of punishment they know is coming if they are not apologetic, if they just speak their minds. And I have gotten to an age and an understanding from which I will not tolerate it anymore. I'm much happier to face the punishment than, you know, turn myself into something that that is so uncomfortable yeah. and, and strangling, frankly. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, I think that you are a wonderful inspiration for all kinds of <laughs> writers and artists. I, no, because you, uh, as the, the kindness, of course, is there, but you're very forthright and you, you know, you speak your mind, but it's not, it's not, um, yeah, listen, I am reason. not for cruelty, you know. <laughs> I'm, cruelty. I'm very, very uh, uh, profoundly against cruelty. And yeah. and I think, you know, in my own case, mm-hmm. um, um, it's, it's always when, you know, I think it, it used to be, even when I was young, it was always possible for me to stand up for someone else, right? right. I mean, because that seemed moral and noble and the right thing to do and... And if I didn't do it, I, you know, was racked by guilt. But in my world, in my, you know, Protestant Midwestern world, um, it was not 
encouraged for girls to stand up for themselves. And it turns out, this is a weird little thing, that modest men, men who don't show aggression and are uh, modest, are also punished. Isn't that fascinating? I had to read studies to find that out because I guess I've always liked modest men. Yes. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. And, but again, I think these human traits should be human traits. They shouldn't be linked to a sex, right? They should be mm-hmm. part of a person's blooming part of his or her story. Mm-hmm. And it, it distresses me mm-hmm. um, because, you know, we're all multiple uh, beings. We're all plural. We have moments of um, humility and moments of feeling our power. We have um, vulnerable moments and courageous and strong moments. Well, I think you really um, helped with our understanding of multiple perspectives, definitely through your writing and also through your celebration of um, other artists and and writers and other disciplines. I feel like I've, I wanted to ask you so many more questions, but I feel like <laughs> I have, it's impossible because you're so productive, but I want, I don't want, I know you have other things to be doing, so um, you've been very generous. Well, and you were just, you were just lovely. So thank you so much, Sir Hussbeck, for your contributions to literature, art, interdisciplinary studies, our understanding of neuroscience, psychoanalysis, for being an example to artists, scientists, philosophers, women of how we don't need to be limited to one role, one perspective, how we contain multiple perspectives and possibilities, and those conversations across disciplines enrich them. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. And Mia, thank you for your generosity, your good questions, and that really, um, really beautiful tribute that makes me feel really happy. Thank you. Thank you.